Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to keep myself occupied, to uh, meet with friends, old and new, and to learn something. Um, I try to bring you some really interesting guests, and today I am so pleased to have Octavia Brown. She has been around for a long time and is a wealth of knowledge and information. She's now retired, so she has some time to share with us, and I'm so excited to have her today. Hi, Octavia, welcome for joining. I'm so glad you're joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity. So, Octavia, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that have never met you and are not sure uh, um, what you do. So, can you just tell us um, what you have been doing all these many years? Well, yes, um, I have been doing uh, what's generally called equine-assisted services or activities. For me, it means therapeutic riding. Um, and I think anybody who's a horse person may have heard of therapeutic riding in one way or another. Um, and I got going with this uh, many years ago before it was even a thing, certainly not a thing in this country. Um, as you can tell, I was born in England and came over when I was 22. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> so were you, you, you were already involved with horses over in England. I was. I was a horse crazy kid in a non-horse family. My mother found a place to send me aged eight. Now, I'm not shy about this. I was born in 1942. So you can figure out, <sighs> there I was, put on a train to go a third of the way across England to a place unaccompanied. <laughs> I was met by a lady with a pony and cart and stayed for a week, <laughs> ration book in hand. <laughs> wow. And learned, learned to ride. And then every year I would go and ride with them or somewhere else. And just, you know, I never dreamed it would be my life, but it was certainly my passion. I, I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be born in, into London um, during that period. It was a very stressful period, actually. <laughs> my parents, I was a little young to know anything about it. <laughs> ah. But it was, yes. Um, and uh, yeah, and at that time, nobody thought anything of sending an eight-year-old off on a train with a notice around your neck saying, take this child to so-and-so. And the guards in the, in the train would make sure that Miss Chater got off the train at da-da-da and went to da-da-da. And I did. Oh, and for anybody who doesn't know, in 1942 to 1945, I don't know when the war started in, in London, in England, but I think the United States got in in 42. Is that right? Yeah, 42 or 43, something like that, yes. So, so that was World War II. Yes. So, um, that's, you, you have seen a lot in your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I just love your cheery attitude about it all because there's, uh, you know, we've, a lot of us have been through stress. And that's one of the things about the pandemic is it's very stressful. But just, just having chatted with you a few minutes before we started the webinar, your enthusiasm and your love of life is so apparent and it comes through the video. So, you know, clearly we can all survive trying times and we just have to keep our spirits up. Yep, I would agree with that, yes. Yeah. So you were eight years old, you were sent off on a train to go take riding lessons and then what happened? <laughs> then every summer I would go, that was one week and then it was two and then it was five and so on and so forth. And uh, when I was about 11, my good girlfriend who was 12 and I decided we ought to have a pony. Now, we lived in the suburbs of London, um, and we found an ad in the local paper for a pony for five pounds, and this man sold us, these two 11, 12-year-olds, this pony for five pounds. We had to bicycle five miles to see this pony in the country, 
we bought a halter and a brush. And for five shillings a week, we were going to be able to keep the pony in his field. We didn't tell our parents, not a word. And she babysat and I did a paper round and we got our five pounds together and we bought the pony. And then she spilled the beans to her mother who came across the road to my mother and said, do you know what our kids have just done? And my father, and I was not, I was not a healthy child. I had asthma and da, 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 da. did I care? Not at all. Um, anyway, I don't remember them telling us we couldn't keep the pony. I have blocked that out of mm -hmm. my head. But my father uh, gave my friend away when she got married. And he said in his speech, they really had no idea how proud we were of them for doing this. And it broke our hearts to tell them they couldn't keep the pony. Oh. So they went and got our five pounds back. <laughs> and then the next animal I got was when I was 22 and arrived in this country. I got a car and a horse in that order. <laughs> oh, wow. So it took you that long to get an- 10 years, yep. <laughs> And my children, my children always say, what could we possibly do to beat that, mom? Yeah. <laughs> so what brought you to America? Oh, spirit of adventure, nothing more or less. Oh, okay. Um, and in those days, in 1964, it was really easy to emigrate. So we got green cards right away, went to Cambridge, Mass, um, became secretaries at Harvard University for professors. And then I discovered, rediscovered riding again. And then I discovered that one of my, my boyfriend was involved with therapeutic riding, which wasn't really then, but he was working at a psychiatric hospital and they had horses on the property. And the German lady who ran the art department had heard of something from Germany to do with people with disabilities and horses. And she thought, why don't we set up a program in this hospital? Uh, he left the job and I took it. Wow, so so this was while you were working at Harvard, there was a hospital near Harvard? Yes. That yes. decided to, to investigate therapeutic riding for their patients. And it was called McLean Hospital. It's still around. It's part of the, uh, the Harvard Medical um, School system. Um, it was a private psychiatric hospital. And in those days, honestly, you could go there and they'd kind of throw away the key. Um, and we had several really quite famous people who went through McLean's doors. Um, got well, went away, um, and I was hired on because of my horse expertise and only that as a full-time person to build their program, which I did. <laughs> wow. So that, that was literally the first therapeutic riding program in the United States. No, it wasn't, but none of us knew about each other. Oh, so people were sort of discovering this along the way, but all of us thought we were in our own corner and nobody, there was no organization. There was no way to know what anybody else was doing. Um, and so I started there and then I read an ad in the Chronicle of the Horse and it said, um, if you're interested in creating a national organization for what they called then riding for the handicapped or riding for the disabled, um, call this number and come to a meeting. So I called the number and I went to a meeting and they said, 16 people in the room. We need a board of directors. Will you be on it? And I said, sure. So, so, so that's so <laughs> amazing. So how many, how many places were doing therapeutic riding at that time when you had your program? 
Do you know? It turned out there were, we had people from Canada and they had started programs. Um, there are people who had gone over to England, which was far more advanced than we were and already had a national organization. And they um, talked to them. And then uh, there were a couple of people who'd been working with, oh, outward bound for kids with problems and things like that. So those of us who answered the ad had all been involved in some way, but didn't know anyone else. And yeah. how many organizations answered the ad? I mean, there were 16 people, but was it 16 organizations? I doubt it. Okay. I mean, I can only think of three or four. All right. Um, so, so you guys all got, where did you get together? New York City. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so what year was that? Uh, that was 1969, basically. Wow. So in 69, the, the people who answered the call from this ad in the Chronicle get together in New York City and form Riding for the Disabled. That's right. Called NARA, North American Riding for the Handicapped Association. It's now called PATH International. Um, and at the time there were 16 of us. So my number is 16 <laughs> because I was by far the youngest person in the room. Oh. Uh, yeah, many of these people had uh, wanted to do this for years. And I have to say that Alexander McKay Smith who was then legendary editor of the Chronicle of the Horse uh, was really spearheading this whole thing and put the resources of the Chronicle totally at the disposition of this group. Um, and he and one other woman called Lida McCowan, who is from Michigan, um, basically brought in kind of all the rest of us and then created the board. And we had meetings in Middleburg at the Chronicle office. Right. And yeah, and it, it went from there. It I live about an hour from that. From, uh -huh. from okay. Yeah. So okay. I go through Middleburg on a regular basis. So you know that office quite well. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. And so who, um, um, who is the woman you just mentioned? Lida McCowan. And what was her center called? The Chef Center. That's what I thought. Do you yeah. know that I was there with Sally Swift when I apprenticed with her? In oh my God. Yeah, that's yeah. why I was like, wait, I know that name from the Dark Ages. Well, and funny enough, she, um, she got involved because a man named P.C. Chef, who had a great deal of money, his wife died, and they wanted to set up something that would benefit uh, children and horses. And it was um, to do with the Battle Creek Hunt, which um, is now where the Chef Center is. And he talked to Lida and she said, I've heard about this riding for the handicapped thing. Let me go to England and find out what needs to happen. So she went to England and then she came back and said to Mr. Chef, you need to create a big program so we can train people to do therapeutic riding. And so she set up the Chef Center. And of course she was on the board. And of course I was on the board. So I went to Chef, the first group to become qualified uh, to teach what I'd already been teaching for two years, two and a half years. So, um, and, you know, so, and, and it just went on from there. <laughs> so someone's asking if you ever met Maria Keim, K-Y-M. I did indeed, yes. She yep. was president of NARA. Um, she was a lovely person. I believe she passed away quite some time ago, but yes, I served under her. Wow. All right. And, so you guys and Marge Kittredge, if anybody knew Marge Kittredge, <laughs> she was a very dear friend of mine. Yeah. Okay, so you started this organization that was essentially national right from the beginning. Correct. Okay, and then because it had oh, okay, great. So you were tied in with with uh, programs yeah. in other countries then. At that That's point. right. Mm -hmm. And so then what happens <laughs> to to them or to me? To you. 
Oh, for me. Well, well, then I got married. <laughs> so, okay. So, so we moved from, uh, from Massachusetts to New Jersey. And of course, I created a program. The first thing I did out the door was to, to make a program. And the local pony club supplied the, the animals. And, um, and I advertised in local paper for volunteers. And everybody came out of the woodwork. Now, I have to say, this is all in the Gladstone, New Jersey area, Bedminster, Far Hills, uh, Bedminster, unfortunately, too well known for its golf course, but we won't go there. Anyway, um, and full of extremely wealthy people. And they were charmed that someone wanted to create this, pro this type of program. So from the get-go, I landed in an area that gave me all kinds of support, financial and advice and all kinds of things like that. So eventually, my husband and I bought a farm and created a program. And it was the first one in New Jersey. And then people kept coming and saying, I want to learn how to do this. So I created an instructor course. And so we would sit around my dining room table um, and people would learn how to be instructors. And I would- So let me just back up a little bit because I'm not sure everybody understands the significance of Gladstone in terms of being the headquarters of the USEF, which was the USEF then, right? Correct. Well, you go ahead and tell them. <laughs> well, I, I don't know the whole history. I really need to find someone who could tell us the history of, of Gladstone because I think that's a very fascinating story. But essentially, it was where all of our Olympic level riders would go to train. Correct. And Nemethy was there. And, and at that time, the team was under the guidance of the, um, the trainer, a single trainer who trained, whether it was dressage or show jumping or eventing. And so they would all get together in that location and, and train there. So very different than how it is now with everybody all over the place. This right. was a very centralized training system at Gladstone, which I'm not even sure who, who owned Gladstone or who built it. Was, it was the Brady family and it was the Brady family farm. And they gave the USET um, the, uh, the historic barn which has the, the famous sand ring outside of it and an indoor. And they gave them that and a couple of hundred acres as well um, out of the Brady estate. Uh, and so that is still where the USET has several staff members, although the main office moved to Kentucky quite some right. time ago. So but US, still... United States equestrian team. And it, it's one of the most beautiful barns I've ever been in. It's, it's wonderful, yeah. yeah gorgeous. It's, it's about a hundred and something odd years old and it's really an amazing place and it's now well protected, it has a foundation all of its own to keep it going. Oh that's really great. Um, it's good news because so, I have you know I have not stayed in touch with what's happened because I know some of the property was sold off. Well not that part at all. The rest of it became a golf course right. um, but the the team hang on to all the property that was its own. So they have run driving events there, they still can of course, back in the day, they had cross country as well, which they don't really now, just the driving. But um, so you were in in a location that was just a hotbed of of horses here in the Gladstone area. And so you started your what was the name of your program? Somerset Hills Handicap Riders. And is it still in existence? <laughs> it is. It's now moved to the town of Oldwick, eight miles away, and it's called Mainstream. Okay. And so, so you started the training program for teachers at your kitchen table. Correct. Dining room, <laughs> dining room table, dining room table. Sorry. And how many people did you have around your dining room table? Oh gosh. Um, really? I mean, there must be dozens who got their start by coming because there really was nowhere else to go unless you went to the chef center. 
And, you know, uh, that was much more expensive and far away. So, um, you know, so people just kept coming out of the woodwork and I kept training them. <laughs> and all over New Jersey, there are people and farther flung than that who have been trained uh, with me one way or the other. That's so amazing. So, so, so now you've got this training program and you ha- you're running a facility. Um, what, where are we in time now? Are, We're are- now sort of in the um, uh, mid, mid 80s up to 90. Um, and um, unfortunately turned out fine, but I went through a divorce. So that meant the farm had to be sold. Mm-hmm. So that meant the program had to find a new home. So it moved to Oldwick and my um, president of our board and I, and between us, we raised enough money to buy the property and that was great. Mm-hmm. And right about that time, Centenary Now University was in touch with me to say, uh, we'd like you to come here and teach your therapeutic writing to our students. And where is Centenary located? It's in Hackettstown, New Jersey. That's right. And it's that's in northeast, whatever, northern New Jersey. Right. It's about 16 miles from where I live. And uh, so I, um, and I knew it was time for me to go because I don't know if you're familiar with this, but anyone with business background, there's a thing called founder syndrome. Mm whereby the person who founded something and was the leading light and all of that, when there's major changes, often that person really should move on. And I knew this because of experience that I'd had elsewhere. And and very fortunately, Centenary offered me a full-time job. So I basically kissed my program goodbye, wished them well, found them a new director, and off I went. So I became professor of equine studies at Centenary University. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, I remember the name because, you know, I'm from Connecticut. I'm from Stanford, Connecticut. And of course, I went to University of New Hampshire. Um, and so, but these are all names that I haven't heard in a long time. You know, I, I, uh, it's, it, um, you know, I hate to say it, but the 90s was 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me that. <laughs> yeah, so I was there for, for um, basically 25 years until I retired, as I said last year. Um, so, you know, and, and then, of course, we did institute the... Uh, the uh, path approved training course for instructors. So I continued training instructors all this time. And we had a, an in-house program known as TRAC, Therapeutic Riding at Centenary. And that is happily is going great guns under a new director, Karen Brittle. And um, she very sweetly is uh, allowing me to stay on a little bit as an advisor. So I still have my hand in at Centenary. Um, and, um, you know, and I continue to see people learning how to be instructors. And if you say that I'm enthusiastic, I have to tell you, there's an old folk song about the wind beneath your wings, right? Yeah. And not to get sentimental, but being sentimental. Um, it is all those young people wanting to do what I do. And they're the ones that impel you forward to say, yes, you can do what I've been doing. And you'll do it better in different places and go and make the next generation happen. So that's, I've been so blessed to be able to do that. That, that is really awesome. And I, um, I have studied the Feldenkrais method and my mentor, Mia Siegel, is, has that same philosophy of she wants her students to exceed her, to do better than her. Right. I think that's, if we're going to see things grow, that is such a critical thing. It's so important to be able to let go. Not an easy thing to do. <laughs> but an important thing to do if we're really going to see growth and change and improvement. Right. Okay. So now getting kind of back to, we had Path International, 
and you've you've stayed involved with that, right? Yes, yes, I, I'm. Um, I am a visitor for their accreditation program, which is to do with the centers themselves, um, and I'm faculty for their um, workshop to train instructors, um, and I'm also an evaluator for uh, testing instructors. And do you still have a horse? No, but I ride the therapeutic horses at Centenary. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, so they take care of me. <laughs> That's great. That's really great. All right. So, so clearly you have a huge background, depth of knowledge in this area of what we call therapeutic riding, but there's so many different aspects of it. And that's what I, what I feel like lately is that there's branches that have come off of this trunk and I get confused as to what the different branches are and how they relate to each other. And so I think you have a PowerPoint for us that can kind of I guide do. us through this. Okay, so let me let me get up to the share screen and, and go to slideshow. Whoa. There we go. I'm gonna get that out of here. Slideshow from the beginning. Okay, so here we go. Um, so to me, this, this picture is kind of the essence of what we're talking about here. And I'd just like to say a little bit about this horse and this rider. Um, this horse's name is Lucy, was Lucy, and sadly, she's no longer with us. And this young man, his name is Sean. And uh, we were just hanging out. We had the horse. We had the, the, the young man. And she went over and did this. And I happen to have my camera. And if you notice, her ears are up. She's gently snuffing his hand, his hand, and is he delighted or what? And um, this young man didn't really want to ride, but she somehow got through to him and he got out of that chair on the ramp and he got on that horse and he'd go for a ride. So I just, I love this picture. Um, sadly, Sean is no longer with us. He had a, a terrible seizure problem, but... Um, and Lucy is no longer with us. So this is an old photograph, but to me, this is what it's all about. Okay, so um, the whole field is now known as equine assisted services. And this, by the way, is a photograph from Centenary. Um, within that, there are, as Wendy rightly pointed out, many different branches. So a little bit of a history here. I have, I am a university professor, so I'm allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's known for um, thousands of years that people with disabilities could get on horses and go places. So we have records of this from the ancient Greeks. We also know that it was actually President Lincoln wrote down that his regular horse ride kept him, quote, regular. So <laughs> um, more, recent, more recently, in the polio epidemic that was happening in the 50s all over Europe and also in this country, um, people in Scandinavia and the UK, um, the clinics were way off in the country and some bright sparks in both areas had ponies. And they would say, well, here are these kids, they've been crippled by polio, let's put them on the pony and let them have a nice time. So they put them on the ponies and they had a lovely time. And people began to see that the pony itself was creating an interest in the therapies they had to go through and so on and so forth. Then it expanded really significantly to people who had cerebral palsy, which often results in stiff legs, arms, and various balance issues. And it was noticed that when they rode, 
they could deal with their disabilities slightly better when they got off the horse. So people started to think, aha, maybe we have something here that we need to really think about. So um, in European countries, people got organized and created national organizations. Most of them, I want to say, had national equestrian federations that train instructors and horse people and so on. So the centers and the, um, the national organizations would partner with each other. And then people in this country, as we've already said, got wind of this. And then we created um, the NARA program in 1969. Um, the, the approaches that are different, um, pretty much all over the world, people have these different things that are going on, primarily for sport and what's called adaptive recreation. This is one of my riders, as you can see, she won a, a blue ribbon and a trophy, um, and uh, she's um, in competition. Um, so sport, the ultimate of that, of course, is the Paralympic people who go to the Olympics. Um, but in between that, there are many, many local shows for people, program level, state level, national level. Um, then what my field is really, which is therapeutic riding. And it is not therapy. This must be clearly understood. It's therapeutic because it's good for people, but it's not conducted by a therapist. It is conducted by someone like me. And I should point out that PATH certifies instructors. We'll get to that later. And I'm a PATH master instructor, which means I could go to any program and teach their lessons fundamentally. Um, so therapeutic writing must be conducted by a certified therapeutic riding instructor. Um, then there's the quality of life emphasis. This woman is a veteran, as you can see from her, her hat, it's from Wounded Warriors. Um, this is for emotional psychological rehab and treatment. Um, it's known as equine assisted learning, possibly equine assisted psychotherapy, different terminology. Um, and there are many groups that may not necessarily ride or necessarily want to ride, but the relationship they create with the horse, that human horse bond can help with helping them to deal with things like PTSD, uh, depression, thoughts of suicide. Uh, there are all kinds of, of uh, documentary and also anecdotal evidence that the entry of the horse into these people's lives can make a very significant difference in how they see themselves and therefore how they see the world. So this is a very dynamic and worthwhile way to go. And I have to say Centenary has a veterans program and this is what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So we're very proud of that. Um, then there is the Strictly Therapy. And this black and white picture is my first program in New Jersey and the lady mounting is a physical therapist. So she was doing what we cheerfully still call hippotherapy. And please note the piece there, Professor, professor talking. <laughs> it was, means horse, not that thing that makes noises in the African swamp. <laughs> Except the hippopotamus is river horse. That's yes, what it, it is, is river horse. Yep. Thank you. Thank yep. you very much. Yes. <laughs> I can't tell you how many jokes there are about this. Anyway, the term is kind of going away. They now want to call it equine assisted therapy. Um, but hippotherapy is such a catchy word that people still use it. But the point is, it must be performed by a licensed medical pr practitioner, occupational, physical therapy, speech pathologist, mental health practitioner. And 
the me as my in my role would be the equine specialist who would work with the therapist, always a team of two. So my hands are there receiving little Tracy who's getting on the horse and the therapist is handing her off to me. So it needs always to be a team of people who can conduct this particular kind of therapy. As I say, not to be confused with therapeutic riding, which is a whole different thing. For that, I'm teaching riding skills, just like anybody else would. And I adapt my plan, my goal, according to who it is that I'm teaching. So I have plans and all kinds of evaluations, but I am not doing therapy. So I really need to underline that. Um, so those are the, the, um, the, the branches that we can think about. Um, this is the, in case people are interested, um, the, the actual worldwide international is Federation of Horses and Edu Education and Therapy, HETI, H-E-T-I. Unfortunately, it's, it still has an old name, F-R-D-I, but it's the same organization. USA is PATH. Um, and then for our region, Region 2, and I showed you the states, it's Health and Recreation Through Horses of New Jersey. Um, and each uh, area of the country has a region for PATH. And uh, we, our region too is very dynamic. We all know each other and we refer each other around, help with horses, all that kind of thing. So you can find information for any of these organizations through their websites. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it really is all about not only my expertise, but the horses and the volunteers. Um, and I think this picture is particularly interesting. This lovely big draft horse, he's a school horse at Centenary, but he also does therapeutic work. The lady with the walker has been riding with me since she was eight. She is now a qualified instructor. So te she teaches therapeutic riding. The lady on the horse is from a group home and uh, everybody else is an instructor in training or a volunteer. So it's all these people that make things work in any program. Um, and this is the second picture in the series. Lucy then put her nose up and Sean hauled off and kissed her. <laughs> now, you know, many horses would have shoved him hard and pushed him away. What did she do? She just breathed down his nose and didn't and stayed there. And that was Lucy. She was a born and bred therapeutic horse. And they, I feel that they are born and bred. They, something about them responds to the situation of somebody needing assistance. Um, I can't tell you how many horses who otherwise might be kind of skittish, when a certain rider gets on, they just calm right down and they behave perfectly and they do what they have to do. But if I got on the horse, it might spook at something and do a 180 and I'd better stay put. So they, they have an innate sense, the ones that we choose for this kind of work. And, and there is a process by which you choose horses for therapeutic, Absolutely. any therapeutic job. Any therapeutic. I saw that the, the post said that she had adopted a, a past therapeutic horse. So it probably had, was not able to do the work that it needed to do. So they farmed it back out to someone. But we take them, evaluate them for at least a couple of months, sometimes longer, um, and throw everything in the book at them. If we use a mounting ramp, they have to go in quietly. If we use an overhead lift, they have to tolerate that. Sidewalkers, leaders, flapping legs, anything we can think of. 
um, balls thrown around their heads, rings tossed off their backs, all that kind of thing, um, to make sure the temperament is what we want. Um, now, some of them get have somewhat, you know, they sometimes have a bad habit of snipping perhaps now and then. We need to know that. We need to know how to deal with it. Um, we need to know if having three people close to them is going to make them unhappy. And um, I'd say we send back many more than we accept, but the ones that we do accept are amazing. Yep, and, and that particular horse that someone referenced in the chat was, it looks like he got retired. He was 26 years old. And That's right. Therapy work for, because, you know, uh, from what I've seen, people tend to think that the job of the horse is not difficult because they're pretty much mostly walking in a lot of situations. Um, but, you know, from as a riding instructor for over 30 years, for me, that is actually one of the hardest jobs because... <laughs> Um, the horse doesn't have suspension in the walk. And so the load, the weight of the riders and the saddle is just kind of coming down on their back. So can you speak a bit to, to just how you perceive the job that how, you know, what the job is like for these horses and how hard I, they are? Yeah. I think you, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. Um, somebody like this young man uh, had had a stroke when he was a baby. So he really had standing balance, but he really couldn't walk. So he could stand and get on the horse, but that was pretty much it. So he's pretty much a dead weight. So when he got on this horse, she is, is, it's like carrying your backpack really low down near your hips instead of up over your shoulders. Um, you and I ride uh, up over the shoulders for the most part because our balance is somewhat forward, not back. But these people may sit right in the middle or even behind the vertical. So the horse is carrying a whole lot more on its lower back. So we have to keep the horse fit and healthy, make sure the back is strong and make sure that it has enough exercise to be able to do the job it has to do. Plus it's boring, you know, for the horse. Walk, 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 little bit of trot, um, you know, little bit of trot in two point, little bit of trot over poles, woohoo! <laughs> going in and out of cones. Um, we're lucky here at Centenary, we can go on a trail ride, which is lovely. Um, but the horses need to tolerate two to three hours a day of doing that work for maybe a 45 minute lesson each. Um, so it's not every horse that can do that. And when I'm looking for one, it has to have a strong back. I'd prefer a short back. Um, she's a quarter horse, so nice strong hindquarters, that good old quarter horsey back end. Um, draft cross is wonderful. Uh, smaller horses for smaller people, fine. Um, so, yeah, it takes a lot, really, to define which horse is going to be a good one. This particular animal we bought from a dealer because we were given some money, so we went and found this horse. And she walked right in the barn, and from day one, she was a therapeutic horse. I can't... It's just like I was born to do this. Um, the ramp, right in, you know, clamber on, no problem. Sit backwards, oh, fine. And she'd been a competition reigning horse. And I think she'd been there, done that, everything. And she was perfect. Another horse was a driving horse. It took her two months to settle down. She's now amazing, but it took that long. So you just take as long as you can take. And it's, and it's not, I mean, you, you can assess certain traits that a horse has to make your initial assessment. But, you know, from my experience, it takes time to see how these horses are going to be able to develop into the idea, unlike Lucy, who's kind of very special, um, or, or not be able to tolerate certain things. That's and right. Figure That's out right. where they fit in your program. 
So this is um, my rider slash instructor, Tracy, with the same horse, Lucy. Um, and Lucy is learning how to walk with her and her walker. So the walk is necessarily slow, but Lucy feels that tug and she walks up and then she stops and then she catches up and then she stops. So yeah, she, she is, um, she was an amazing horse. She was also um, region two horse of the year. Uh, so she's got honored, yep. <laughs> and uh, we're very proud of her. And uh, we just, Centenary just had another horse of the year for the region, Belle, who's another mare. We have three mares in our program and they're all wonderful. And then in your program at Centenary, are the horses also used for able-bodied riders? Well, this one and Belle were, were purchased or donated directly to us to track. So I, we would only allow them out for the correct rider and they don't jump. They do walk trot, maybe walk trot canter, um, but they're not allowed to use for them for intercollegiate competition. Um, there's strictly a division between the therapeutic horses and the school horses that we can borrow. But my, my point being, um, you know, I know with the therapeutic horses, a lot of the work is slow and that they benefit from being ridden by an able-bodied rider to keep them, uh, get more aerobic exercise and keep them more fit. Um, I'm not sure every program does that with their therapy horses. Well, they should. Uh, we're very lucky because you, uh, we had um, a job, a paid job, a student, what do they call it? I forget, there's a name for a student job on campus that you get money for your uh, um, tuition. Anyway, so we would um, assign somebody to ride, let's say this horse, and she would ride this horse two or three times a week and keep her right up to her walk, trot, canter, bending, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of shoulder in, a little bit of that. Um, and if, the, if she was wanted in a beginner up to basic one, two or three lesson, she could be used for that because same thing, walk, trot, canter twice a week. And if none of that's happening, then a, ski, a, a group of volunteers are the schooling team and we ride two or three times a week. So we keep the horses well up to their bits and well up to their weight carrying. And that's why this horse finally passed away age 29 and was only out of work for 18 months at the end of her life. So, you know. So the fitness is really important. Fitness is incredibly important, especially for their back. Yep. And then with your hippotherapy horses, that because, can you describe what the horse's role is in hippotherapy a little bit more? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, do I have another picture? No. Um, they, uh, if you look at this horse, she would be wearing a bareback pad, not a saddle. And that means something that's uh, large and thick and is held on with a very tight strap around the belly, no stirrups, and it's flat. And the rider is put on this pad, and they then have to balance against the movement of the horse. And a little theory here, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, the walk of the horse is a four beat gait. One, two, three, four, you know, front leg, hind leg, front leg, hind leg. Um, and so that moves the rider's pelvis in a circular way. The horse, because it lifts you and it moves you forward and then it lifts you and it moves you forward. So your, your, your pelvis and your trunk are being moved side to side, forward and back, and in rotation. Um, the therapists use this because guess what? That is what your own pelvis does when you walk. 
So when you normally walk, you push off one foot, you swing the other leg forward rotation. You land down, that's lateral. You push off, that's front and back. Then you take another step, rotation. So the therapist is creating the walking gait on the back of the horse. And that teaches people who have trouble walking, have had a stroke, have had M multiple sclerosis, have spasticity, stiffness, weakness, whatever. It teaches them how to perform that motion. And so the idea is that the brain can learn a new pattern of movement from the back of the horse. And the brain is this plastic thing that can in fact learn that. Whenever we learn a new skill, I would diverge to say that, um, everybody remember what, what um, sailboarding is, where you have a sail on a board and you have to lift it up and sail along and then you make the sail go here and there on the ocean and you're going back and forth. I am no sailor, but I learned how to do this. And by the end, I was pretty competent and my brain learned how to do this from a standing start. And I'm not an athlete. So the similar thing is going on in hippotherapy. Um, and that is the hope and promise of that particular um, way. They do not trot, they only use a walk, but the horse has to really walk. That hind end gets right up underneath the rider and pushes them forward and pushes them up and backwards and forwards and side to side. And so it, it takes us a, um, a special horse to be able to, so each level of, of uh, therapeutic to therapy um, requires horses that are really capable of doing that particular job. Like That's not correct. all horses are gonna be hippotherapy horses, but all hippotherapy horses could probably be therapeutic horses. That's exactly right. This horse is not a hippotherapy horse. She's a Western horse. So she does the Western jog just beautifully and the little lope just beautifully. That's not what you want. And ask her to extend her walk. And she said, huh, I don't think so. Tomorrow, not today. <laughs> but that big draft that you saw is similar because his gait is so smooth, you're not getting any motion. Right. But a big old warm blood horse or a thoroughbred or thoroughbred cross has lots of motion that can be energized for hippotherapy. And they train the horse to stride out, use its back, use its hind end, and give that. But those, those sessions are short, 20 minutes, no more than half an hour, and really only one a day, maybe one morning and one afternoon, because it's stressful. Those people are, are uncoordinated. Um, they can be, therefore, their weight is far more than the pounds they actually weigh. Yes. It's as if you added half again as much for the horse to tote around. So somebody's asked a question, um, were you ever involved with the formation of the therapeutic horse division of the Devon Horse Show or that was held at Thorncroft? Um, no, but I, I know Thorncroft very well and I took people to be part of that. And I just found a record in my, um, of Saunders Dixon who created Thorncroft came to a clinic I gave in 1984, I think. <laughs> and so I've known him since then. And uh, we talked about all these kinds of things. So I'd like to say that I have maybe a little bit of a hand in that, but I definitely took horses to that. And it was only at Thorncroft. And then eventually it went on to be part of Devon. So it started out as an in-house show, inviting all the programs roundabout to come with their own horses. And then it became the Devon thing. 
Oh, awesome. And um, do you have any idea how many therapeutic centers there are now in the United States? <laughs> hundreds. <laughs> I, I don't have that number. No, but there are hundreds. Um, 700, 800, maybe something wow. like that. Okay. And thousands of riders and thousands of horses and thousands of volunteers. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the volunteers can't be understated in terms of their importance. That is correct. Um, and uh, is, is, yeah, going back to this picture. Um, so, and I'm going to, uh, actually, I have a slide at the end. If people want to become involved, what's kind of involved in becoming one of these people. Yeah. But um, so do you want me to, to go to that and talk about that? Yeah, and, and also how has the pandemic COVID uh, affected the programs? Because I think right now that's, I know that a lot of programs were shut down. I live uh, not far from Loudoun Therapeutic. Um, oh, yes, uh, of course, yes. We, well, but I know that the this, pandemic- This photograph is clearly pre-COVID. Um, yes. So, <laughs> so we, um, we, I still talk of we because track is sort of mine, but I think most PATH programs, um, what, what most people are doing is if the rider needs just a leader, then the leader has a mask, the rider has a mask, the people who assist with mounting and dismounting are masked up. But in the lesson, it's only the rider and the leader, and they are sort of by definition, you know, several feet apart. Um, if they need a side person, it has to be one of their family members. And they have Which to- Which is very mask. different than pre-COVID. Yes, and those people have to be trained and become volunteers. Um, and then the instructor is allowed to drop their mask so they can talk as long as everybody's staying, you know, far away. So the instructor is in the middle and everybody is far away. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and that seems to work. And then if a rider is independent and doesn't need a leader, they are asked still to wear a mask, but they are allowed to drop it when they're completely off lead. But everybody has to mask up again when we all get close together. Um, so, and all the volunteers, when they get the horses ready, full masks up, keeping distance, you know, all those things are, are, have to be part of it and all of the cleaning and everything, you know, everybody right. knows what's going on. So, with that. so it's really, there's, um, it's, it's affected a lot of program. I know for a while, a lot of programs were shut down and, you know, the, the, the thing there is that the students are the ones who, who are really, oh, um, they miss it terribly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, many, so what some programs have done is they have had people come and visit the horse and the kid is masked up or the adult is masked up and the family is and there's one one helper and they take them to the horse and, um, you know, put the horse on a cross tie and let the people be close to the horse. And that's it. Yeah. You know, and then you can direct them to put a brush on, perhaps. But everybody tries to keep that distance. Um, but. If you have space, as you can see, this is a huge indoor ring. So there's space, you can do that. Um, people have been very ingenious in how to keep people. And there's a lot of online Zoom things, how to groom, how to do this, how to do that. Lots of, of very creative stuff to try and keep your clients involved and interested. Right, and I, you know, that's the thing is, is we all have to learn how to adapt to this environment until things, change again and improve and that it's but it's so important to try and figure out a way to make it work for the students because it's such a value it's uh i don't think they, they would tell you that um this young woman tracy with the walker she will tell you cheerfully that it completely changed her life she started when she was seven with me 
Um, she uh, went to college. She got a car. She got an independent job. She moved away from her family to live independently. She became an instructor and all of it because of getting on the horse and wanting to have that. So she now has this whole identity as a therapeutic riding instructor that never could have happened without this movement. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. All right, so if people wanna get involved. Um, so this is my advice, and I'm sorry there's a lot on this slide. Uh, so I'll just let people kind of read this a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to be a side person, like that other slide showed, you need to feel comfortable about horses. You don't need to be a, a, a Grand Prix jumper to do this. Um, if you aspire to lead a horse, um, then you do need to be experienced and comfortable with handling horses. Um, and we're very careful. Um, I'm sorry, I, my, I didn't do a spell check on that. It's okay. Be a Lisa? I don't think so. <laughs> Leader, sorry about that. Um, anyway, um, so the side people obviously need training, but the leader needs more training because that job, you're responsible for horse rider and paying attention to the instructor. So it's not everybody who's cut out to be a leader and they're very special. Everybody's special, but that's a particularly um, important job. Um, programs train you. They have videos, they have practice sessions, they have ongoing education. They ask you to tell, ask questions and really volunteers are the lifeblood of every program. So we need people, um, they love it. Some of them decide they'll go on and try to be an instructor. So now to become an instructor, obviously you need horse background. You really should be, I would say an intermediate rider, um, able to evaluate a horse for, for this, able to school and ride a horse for this, if you have a reason why you cannot ride, you need to be able to direct someone else to do all those things. Um, and then you need to have the passion to go through the training and the certification. Um, PATH has a lot of stuff on its website. It's not the best website in the world, but it has a lot of information. So go find that out. Uh, find your local program, they're listed there. Go to Google, You know, go to those search engines, you'll find these things. Um, little guideline, if they are a PATH member center or a PATH accredited center, they means they've gone through a process to be recognized. If they're not affiliated with PATH, they may be fine, but nobody has really checked them out. So um, just be aware of that. Nothing against those programs, but just be aware that they're not really in the mainstream part of things. Um, if you're some sort of um, mental health um, or uh, hypotherapy, speech, OTPT, um, this organization is where you go for training and certification to add um, equine assisted therapy to your normal work of being a therapist. Um, so uh, that is for that. Should I leave that for a bit or go on? Yeah, I think you can go on because they can always pause the the webinar later. Okay, that's true. Um, if you're a mental health practitioner, PATH offers this long title, Equine Facilitated Mental Health and Learning Specialist. Ha ha ha. I am one of those um, <laughs> as an educator. Um, and um, this uh, offers training for both sides of this, for the people who are in the psycho 
therapy, social, psycho, what do you call it? Uh, psychiatric social work, uh, counseling, where they can add um, usually unmounted work, bringing people around horses with their specialist, uh, the equine specialist. Um, the learning part is for schools where you have a curriculum that the school will go along with and you bring the kids out to the barn to do unmounted and maybe mounted work. So there's a special uh, certification for that aspect of this, uh, which is less about riding skills and more about interaction with the horse, uh, including whatever the practitioner really wants to include. Um, and people are enormously creative about that. <laughs> um, if you're looking to donate a horse, uh, it has to be sound. Oh, Wendy, I can't tell you how many people say, well, he has a little arthritis or he has a little foot problem. There's no such thing as a little anything if you're doing therapeutic work. It must be able to be controlled easily without too much veterinary uh, in, uh, intrusion. So sound, um, obviously calm and sensible, carrying weight appropriate to the size of the animal, um, and capable of the work that they do. We'd like them to be able to canter or lope because then an exercise rider can put them through all their paces and preferably less than 20. <laughs> he's 25 and he's been turned out for 10 years and would you like him? So no. <laughs> I think what you're saying is therapeutic riding is not a place to send your horse just because you're looking for a home. That, or a retirement home. Exactly, yes. Therapeutic riding needs horses that that can really do their job because it is, a, you know, from what I've seen, it's a tough job. You have it to, be able to tolerate a lot. You have to be able to, to deal with all kinds of different environments and to be able to stabilize under the weight. And I think that um, when you start to realize, and that's one of the things I love about your talk here is when you realize just exactly what the job is, you realize it has to be a horse that can do that job happily or it's, or it's not gonna work. You know, the right. And the, the ones that we that do best are horses um, that have been everywhere and done things. Uh, a backyard horse that's been in the backyard its whole life is less suited because this is a surprising environment. It's a it's it's not for the faint of heart type horse at all. Um, an old show horse that's still perfectly sound, but you don't really want to jump him anymore is perfect. A horse that has maybe had an issue has been completely cured. Um, you know, and a little arthritis, okay, we can deal with that. We can do adequan. We can do the things that keep a horse comfortable, but it is not a retirement home. It is not. So, and um, this is my contact information. Um, and uh, my doctorate was courtesy of, um, of Centenary University. They very nicely made me Dr. Brown, which Please, my kids, no end. Um, I still am allowed to have the address because I am a professor emeritus at Centenary. Um, I'm happy to give advice, uh, answer questions, um, you know, what, whatever I can do to help because I love to be of help to people in this, in this way. And that's <laughs> it for me. <laughs> so I'm going to stop the share now. And, uh, I love your end. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> Well, you know, this has been amazing. You have, you, you know, you have such a depth of knowledge, but you've been there for all these years and it's just um, really fantastic. And I, I can't imagine 
what it's like to see this little kernel grow into this huge tree and, um, and really become such a success all around the world. It's really mm -hmm. amazing. I'm looking to see if there are questions here. Oh, look, someone's an exercise writer. Ex excellent. Um, found my program. Hey, okay. Okay, well, people already knowing about this. Yeah. Competed at, oh, Thorncroft. Okay, are you somebody with a disability? I wonder. That would be great. Who that was. Are you aspiring to become an instructor? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, what's really important is that people find their local centers and really support them, whether that's uh, in any way you can, you know, if it's financial, if it's volunteer hours, all of these programs really um, appreciate and need a lot of support to make their programs work. And I know that it's, it's a, uh, yes, she is, but not an instructor. Oh, well, carry on and, and uh, carry on riding. That's all I can say. Listen, I had two replacement hips, so I'm sort of a disabled rider myself. <laughs> <laughs> I get on from the ramp and I get off very carefully and I only ride the very smooth riding horses, you know. <laughs> but you're still riding and that's fantastic. I am still riding, yes. So this has been such fun. And thank you everybody for tuning in and, you know, and for when, to Wendy for putting this on and Surefoot for sponsoring it and all of that. We really appreciate the work that you do. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so glad to have you as my guest. So, um, Everybody just remember, you can find this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. And we're gonna have a break for Tuesday, Wednesday. On Thursday, we're gonna come back with Gracie Herring and talk about uh, infrared imaging. So stay tuned for that and we'll see you then. It's gonna be in the evening cause she's in Australia, just so you know. Mm. All right. And thank you so much for joining me, Octavia. It's been a Fun pleasure. to talk to you. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Bye. Yep. Bye.